0: Listeners of this podcast know that we pride ourselves for not only the cutting-edge policy, but also on explaining the fundamental building blocks of finance. And this summer, we'll be doing just that, taking a look at questions our listeners seem to grapple with, as well as reviewing some of the best new writing in fintech and policy. So today, we're going to kickstart that conversation by unbundling the question of payments. Payments. In short, what is a payment, what are the rails on which payments are made, and why does it even matter at all? Well, to break it all down for us, we are delighted to welcome two guests who have promised to give us the 101 course on payments. Yesha Yadav, a professor of law at Vanderbilt, and Jose Fernandez-Deponte, a superstar payments wonk at PayPal. Now, Yesha is one of my best friends in the academy, and I've personally advised Jose and the PayPal squad over the years, so I felt that there were perhaps no better victims for me to drag onto the show. Moreover, with Amy Devine Kim, they've written a new paper commissioned by PayPal on payments entitled Payments and the Evolution of Stablecoins and CBDCs in the Global Economy, which has been published on SSRN and is designed to take a reader from zero to 60 on payments, infrastructure, and the law. So fasten your seatbelts, and let's take a fantastic little voyage through the world of payments. Jose, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me, Chris. Yesha, it's great to have you back.
1: Chris, it's such a pleasure to be back. So happy to be here with you and Jose.
0: Jose, so let's uh, schoolhouse rock this topic for the uninitiated. When people talk about payments, people often talk past one another. So maybe you can lay the definitional groundwork for us. What is a payment? So what is a payment? We could
2: fill the podcast with what is a payment and books have been reading on that. But let me give you the, the, the two part definition that I have in my mind. So the first part is a payment is a settlement of a liability. And the second part is through a transfer of value. And why, why are both parts important? The liability piece is important. where for it to be a payment, I'm sending you something of value because I owe you for something. And, and that triggers a bunch of different things that make a payment way more complicated than just the transaction. It's just not about moving value from Jose to Chris, from Jose to Yesha, the, the liability involved generates all sorts of complications that can happen. That's why there are dispute resolution mechanisms. That is that I'm paying you for something that I bought from you, but I never received it. Or what I received was something totally different. And that's why there are the credit card networks have chargebacks where you can protest that, hey, I want my money back because this is not what I was buying. So that is the liability aspect, which is super important. The second part of it is a transfer of value. And you and I need to agree that what is being transferred has the same value. And then we go to money, which money is a, one of the most fascinating philosophical concepts of all time, because basically you and I are both trusting that what I'm giving you has, has some value. And there are, for our audience, there are different types of money. There is it's interesting. I, sometimes I, I teach a course for college students here in California. And the first question that I always ask is, raise your hand, those of you who believe that the money in your bank account is yours. And the first day, everybody will raise their hands. And, and after we are done with the, with the lecture, people are saying, no, audience, the, ba- the money in your bank account is not your money. What you did is you lend your money to your bank with the promise that they will repay it to you. What you own is the promise of repayment, not the money. And that is fundamentally important because then the bank will get that money and lend it out and we need that for the economy to have and credit to be to be available. so that is why that is called commercial bank money, which is what we all think of uh, when uh, generally when we are thinking of our money. The other side of it is central bank money, which is the money that the dollar bills that you carry in your wallet if you are still doing doing that where what you own there is a claim that if you're in the us that has the full faith and credit of the U.S. and the promise of repayment is is from the country, not from a commercial bank. To close on on your question, for a payment to exist, there has to be a liability that is settled with a value instrument that you and I agree that has the same value.
0: Okay, so that was great. We have this idea of a payment consisting of a liability and a transfer of value. And if I'm hearing you correctly, when we think about what that value means, it ultimately comes down to this idea of money. But... Uh, money is itself a pretty con- complex concept and, and, and you basically boil it all down to commercial bank money, uh, really private money, and then uh, central bank money or, or, or public money, the government money. Uh, Yesha, is that how you see it? And what does that look like in practice? What, what happens when I hand you my suitcase full of dollar bills or send you money through my bank?
1: This really is not a simple process Chris you know you said let's keep it simple and unfortunately the system that we have today you know, is is a is a is a much more complicated, interesting um, uh, uh, sort of framework of moving the value that uh, Jose was referring to. And so, I want to come back to the concept that Jose introduced with respect to public money and private money, first and foremost, right? So, we have two different types of money, broadly speaking, in this economy. One is public money. One is private money. Public money um, is, as Jose said, money that is backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. Now, ignoring all the shenanigans with the debt ceiling, this is by far the safest, most awesome, most gorgeous type of money anywhere you can fully trust um, that it's going to be paid out at the value that is promised to be paid out at, Um, the Federal Reserve stands behind it. Now, for most of us, we, the peeps, um, most of us, normal people, um, the only interaction that we have with public money is through physical cash. Um, and physical cash is great in many ways. It is, you know, super convenient. It's a bearer instrument. If you hold it, you own it. Transferring it means that you are handing it over to someone. And that's how you transfer ownership. It's really easy. In addition, obviously, it's mostly anonymous, um, and that can be helpful in many cases. But there are also serious limitations with public money. Um, This is money you have to carry. It's unsafe. It's super costly. You have to store it. Um. And so what we need is a system that allows for money in this vibrant, interesting economy to move much more flexibly. And so through private money, money that is owed by private institutions, money claims owed by private institutions like banks, as Jose mentioned, we're able to contractually create many, many different types of payment schemes that allow for money to be moved in interesting, innovative ways throughout the economy.
0: So just for the students listening in, Professor Yanov, uh, can you give us a simple example? Let's uh, maybe go with something that's really familiar, maybe an example involving checking.
1: Now, checks are one example of this convenience. So um, a check, broadly speaking, is a way for you, the, the tenant, to authorize your landlord and their bank to debit the rent money every single month from your account. So when you hand that paper check over to the landlord, the landlord presents it at their bank, the bank then does something super interesting, which is that it collects all the checks that it gets during the day and sends it over to essentially a system run by the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve then collects all these different checks, they check the checks, are the checks valid? Are they, you know, are they executed properly? And then they have accounts for each of the different banks that they are controlling. And they debit and credit to see which banks are owed what from which other different banks. And they reconcile these payments. So all the banks within their system get net payments from the different checks that are owed to them. And eventually, your, landlord bank, your landlord's bank gets that check and then credits the landlord. And your bank debits your account with that money. Now you can see why the system is cool in many ways. It allows for money to be so mobile. I can send you a check, Chris. You're in, uh, in Washington, DC. Jose's in Cali. And so I can send these checks super mobile, but equally, right? It's uh, you know, it's a system that comes with trade-offs. The check clearing system today um, is a pretty slow system, at least one to two business days for that money to launch in your account. And many different payment schemes that we have enabled by private money. Credit cards, um, ACH systems, as we'll talk about shortly. These are all schemes that come with conveniences, but they also come with um, some drawbacks and trade-offs that we need to talk about as well.
0: Well, I mean, well, since since you mentioned uh, ACH, and and I I, I probably want to add maybe the Fedwire system because a lot of listeners who may not necessarily be in payments, but they may be in in capital markets or or, or other uh, derivatives or, or like they may not necessarily know. Um, everything about these things. So where and and, and under what circumstances in this system that you've described, uh, do ACH and, and, and Fedwire systems come in?
1: So, you know, we talked about you giving your money to your landlord. That's the basic transaction between you and I. But, you know, for many cases, we also interact with our banks. But most folks need to go through bank accounts in order to make payments. Now, the ACH and the FedWire systems are ways in which the money moves within the economy and within the banking system more broadly. So let me kind of just break it down a little bit more concretely. So the ACH system is a system that you and I and most adults in America are going to interact with on a fairly regular basis. Chris, you're a baller professor at Georgetown. Jose, you're a baller cat at PayPal, right? Um, you're hopefully going to get your monthly salary paid to you. Presumably, Chris, I know you love Ethiopian food. Um, you have, you know, a standing account maybe with the restaurant down the road and you're going to get, you know, your, your subscriptions. You love American football. I believe, um, you're going to have a sports channel you subscribe to, um, you know, these payments, these normal retail payments, Are made through what is known as the ACH system, the Automated Clearinghouse System. This is a really, really cool payment scheme. It's um, a bank based payment scheme. So, your Georgetown Bank, Georgetown's bank, sends an instruction to your bank to credit that money every single month. It is moved by the rules and processes of the Automated Clearinghouse, where all the different banks are a part of this scheme. It's managed by The Federal Reserve, once again, the Federal Reserve ultimately reconciles the debits and the credits between the different uh, banks and credits their account with the Federal Reserve. Um, And the ACA system is really cool because it enables not just push transactions where Georgetown pushes money to you, but also transactions where the payee, the person being paid, pulls the money, right? So they are asking for the money to be paid. So your electric company, for example, will ask for a a payment every single month. They're pulling that money. And the ACH enables these cool different payment designs. Now, ACH payments are used for your salaries, your bills, social security. It is a retail facing payment scheme that covers the entire country. And it's super useful. I believe around $72 trillion worth of ACH payments were made last year, right? So it's Extremely significant economically for our everyday lives. Fedwire, you know, we feel it less, but it's an incredibly important payment scheme. We feel it less in our everyday lives because this is a scheme for the banks. The banks, you know, are sending trillions of dollars to each other every single day. Fedwire is a real time gross settlement scheme, RTGS. What does that mean? Well, the Fedwire is open to banks who have accounts at the Federal Reserve. Now we said earlier, Jose and I, that if you have a claim owed to you by the Federal Reserve, that is public money. It's the safest of all possible money. And so Fedwire is publicly backed money that the banks have because they have a, you know they have claims with the Fed. So this is public money that they are settling their liabilities in. It's public money. It is moving at a gross basis, so $1,000 dollars will be sent entirely, no net payments. It settles immediately so the banks can use it straight away. And this is the payment system that moves approximately, I think last year, around $1,000 trillion worth of value. Average Fedwire payments are around $5 trillion, I believe. Um, So each transaction is around $5 trillion on average. So you can see the difference between the ACH and the Fedwire. Two complementary bank-based settlement schemes that provide the rails to make all sorts of different payments within the economy broadly.
0: Yesha, that was a tour de force, and I must say I have never heard of ACH systems being described as cool, so take that, Jack Harlow and City Girls. Uh, So, uh, Jose, I'm going to turn to you here because uh, ultimately you're not exactly dispelling this picture in your report. Um, You know, you, you say the U.S. payment system blends innovation and legacy. Uh, But, you know, some folks are going to be, you know, uh, saying, come on. Is is, is this really a blend of innovation and legacy? Uh, Or is it, like everything else in life, a product of different constraints where sometimes second and even third best solutions are are stacked on top of one another and you get, well, what we have today? What are the limitations of this wonderful tapestry of innovation that Yesha is describing?
2: Look, Chris, if if Tocqueville were to come back to the US now and write payments in America, his job would, would drop to the ground. And for, for, for the good and, and, and for the less good, I guess. As uh, as you know, I, I grew up in, in Spain and I did a, a relevant chunk of my payments career in places like South America and Israel and South Africa. And I have the blessing that I've seen payment systems in, in a, probably 20 different countries. And I have never seen anything like the U.S. I've been in this country for 12 years, and and I'm still a devoted observer and student of of payments and and financial regulation in in the U.S. There are a couple of things that are really, really unique about the the U.S. and have implications for good and and for less good. The first one is what Justice Brandeis called the 50 Laboratories of Democracy, right? The states. So the, the, the fact that we have payments regulation at the state level and it's very clear from the constitution, and that payments are regulated at the state level. Uh, that creates incredible opportunities for innovation that we see, and, and not only payments, and also the first one is payments. The second one is the dual banking system, the federal and the state uh, level of, of banking. So that allows for an environment in which innovation can bubble up in one state, get adopted, get challenged, and then can move to other states and and, and extend. We can see. Uh, examples that are very close to to the day-to-day of my work so New York State has been very pioneer on how they deal with digital currencies and and stable coins in particular and have developed a robust uh, framework for that and then Wyoming reacted and created a special uh, purpose depository uh, institution or the, the speedy charters and that that sense and that innovation is allowed by by the state model what that doesn't do is not very conducive to why the spread adopted uh, robust infrastructure. So many of the things that Jesha was referring to in terms of the ACH. The checks Czech, the are a fantastic uh, case. First, there are very few countries in the world now where checks are, are as widely used in, as, as in the U.S. Checks are physical. They have to be moved around. They take time to clear. It, you need to move them. You need to move them in plane. There are planes in the sky with bags of checks going from banks to clearing centers. So it is... Uh, there ha- there is innovation in that space and a lot of that uh, electronic check clearing out happens through through the ach but in that there, and it's not only in financial services but but this idea of innovation at the state level that then gets adopted it, it does lead in some cases to the to the infrastructure at the country level being less seamless maybe than 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 it could be uh, We'll take the good with the less good. I think that the overall is, is positive. There is a ton of innovation that has happened in the US in terms of, of payments. And even when we're having, we're having the conversation around a Fedwire, we're having a conversation around ACH, part of that innovation is we very rarely talk about the competition for ACH, the clearinghouse, which is the private uh, competing network to that. Uh, and I think it's especially relevant because we talk a lot these days about FedNow, the real-time, the, the retail version of the real-time versus on the system of Fed. The Clearinghouse has been operating RTP, which is their version of, of FedNow, for a while now. And if you are a user of Zelle and you use Zelle to send for free money from, from yourself to friends or family, probably some of those payments are going through RTP already. So that beautiful and incredibly complex and messy system that bubbles up to the top and the best things get adopted and the worst things get discarded, I think it's something that is very, very specific to the US. And you don't see that in places like the European Union, where there is the approach is different. Is Somebody will define the standard, the European Union will define the standard, it will get adopted, probably it will take Longer for the innovation to flourish, but then is adopted uh, more quickly in in the in the whole region. Is to take the good with the with a, with inconvenience of the system. Again, I will side in the with innovation and especially in payments. This idea that the states regulate the payments and that allows for for that innovation to flourish. I think it's a defining characteristic in the U.S.
1: I mean, if I can just add a little bit to what Jose said, which is that we have an, we have, you know, two layers at which you know Jose that Jose is highlighting here, which is the infrastructure layer, um, where the banks are moving the money and the Fed is operating different payment schemes like ACH and Fedwire. Um, that is what we use to finally settle payments between the different. Accounts um, in the system, and then there's this user layer—the user to bank interface, the user to the payment service provider interface—and there's a lot of innovation that is happening at that in that in that space. So, you know, for example, we have looked at the at the pandemic. Um, we have seen you know enormous amounts of you know innovation um, arrive in our fingertips with smartphone-based um, digital wallets, um, P2P schemes that have grown enormously in popularity. Uh, we have seen contactless payments. The, the landscape looked very different five years ago um, to what it does today. And this is the user-facing you know, user-facing interface in which a ton of innovation is happening. But that is layered onto this infrastructure layer, which has remained fairly static, a bank-based um, infrastructure settlement layer where you need to go through the banking system. There is time involved, as, as Jose was mentioning, for check clearing, it takes days, ACH takes days. Um, And time is money, you know. Time is inconvenience. Um, Time is the fact that folks in the gig economy need their money straight away and they might not get it. You know, having a bank based infrastructure means that you need a bank account. For many folks in the US, that is not, you know, we can't take that for granted. 4.5% of households in the US are unbanked, around, you know, 14.5% are underbanked right so clearly this is a system as jose said that comes with trade offs when we look at the settlement layer it has not innovated a whole lot the user the user to to um, the user layer the user facing layer we have seen a, a lot of movement there which has been interesting to observe
0: so how does this compare internationally? Obviously, uh, just looking around in the payment space, we see all kinds of innovation, not just in PESA in Kenya, but also PIX in Brazil, where the central bank itself introduced a payment solution where uh, payments can be executed in just seconds. And, and these aren't just front-end solutions. Uh, these are back-end settlement solutions. Uh, now, uh, obviously, uh, the US will be introducing its Fed Now. Um, a process and and, and technology uh, very soon, which is promising instant payments. But how does it all ultimately compare?
1: Amazing questions, Chris. Um, Firstly, like we said earlier, time is money. Um, The longer money takes to move in the economy, the harder it is for the economy to flourish to its fullest potential. In addition, you don't want to pay money to send money um, and you want to be able to send money to as many people as you possibly can. So you want the payment system to be super inclusive. Um, and other, you know, many other countries and regions around the world have recognized the power of the payment system to facilitate a flourishing and, and, and thriving economy, not just for those who have bank accounts, but also just you know, for, the, for the larger population that may have you know, faced financial cl- exclusion historically. So what we've seen... Um, you've seen a concerted effort internationally um, to modernize, innovate, create brand new infrastructure around payments in countries, you know, in in many leading economies around the world. So um, you mentioned PICS, Chris, and this is an incredible example of innovation structurally um, and economically. Now the PICS system was set up in Brazil around 2020 and within a year, approximately half the Brazilian population was using it, right? This is a system that enables peer-to-peer essentially real-time settlement where you can send money. I can send money to you on my phone. It settles in real time. It doesn't go through, you know, some kind of lag process. It settles in real time and enables us to essentially talk to each other through money. Um, This system has achieved such roaring success in Brazil that COVID stimulus payments were made. And for many people, that was their first interaction with online payments and indeed sometimes with getting payments in a, in a, in a, in a way that did not include cash, right? So, um, you know, the, the, the Brazilian example is startling from that perspective. A couple of interesting facets about the PIC scheme. One, it's free for people to use. For everyday people who want to use it, it's free. In addition, it includes both banks as well as non-banks. So what the Brazilian uh, policymakers the Central Bank said was that we want to get as many folks into this net as possible. So we're going to include not just the bank customers, but also those, for example, money remittance firms and others that are potentially interacting with folks that are outside the banking perimeter. So Pix is one example. In addition, we have the UPI system in India, which is, a, you know, a, an incredibly thriving payment system in India that has captured amongst the highest payment transaction volumes anywhere in the world. Um, in the case of Thailand, you've got Prompt Pay. These real-time payment schemes have proliferated. Sweden, Swish, faster payments in the U.S. They're proliferated around the globe two aspects to think about in that in that context. One, creating brand new payment rails and infrastructure. And two, potentially including formally non-banks or non-banks within the scheme to be able to settle in real time with other financial institutions. Some countries like India have uh, created regimes where banks become licensed as narrow banks, payment banks, in order to do this. Other countries allow non-banks as non-banks to enter the scheme. So that kind of innovation has um, you know, is is very visible around the globe. In the U.S., that innovation has been much slower. Um, arguably, at least in the level of the settlement rails, the underlying settlement rails, that innovation has been far slower. So a couple of things to highlight here. Firstly, um, there has been a big debate about who gets to join the, the payment schemes. Can we have banks as well as non-banks? There has been, as you know, Chris, a large debate, a contentious debate about who gets to have a Fed account. Um, this debate has come up time and time again with crypto banks as well as non-banks trying to think about ways to get Fed accounts, and and that you know has proven to be extremely. Difficult. So that debate is underway. In addition, obviously, there is the question of whether the payment scheme that has been brought forward FedNow is going to be as innovative as we want it to be. Now, this is a potentially great scheme, real time payments settling in real time, allowing person to person payments. But there are some causes for concern that commentators have raised. Firstly, it is going to be a bank based scheme for now, which means that you have to have a bank account. It's not clear whether it will cost people money to use it. Will it cost you to send a payment? If it does, that could be a problem. In the European Union, the SEPA, the Single Euro Payment Area's Instant Payment Scheme, is a charge-based scheme. Very few people use it as a result, right? So what you charge can make a difference. Third of all, it's not clear whether all the banks even want to join it. So a number of rural banks, for example, a number of banks that are located in, you know, um, you know, smaller community banks are not sure that they want to take on the cost of joining it. So it will depend on how much it costs operationally for different institutions to come on board. So different countries have adopted policy solutions to overcome some of these costs. Um, I think we're still working out how we get there. So there is still a gap in the US. We're still arguably lagging um, in the speed at which we're uh, modernizing and innovating our underlying payment infrastructure to be make it as inclusive and efficient as arguably it could be.
0: Okay, Jose, I I mean, maybe you can just sort of add on to that. I mean, you know, and there was a lot in that answer, you know, this non-bank bank bank question in terms of sort of both accessing Fed payment rails, but also how do you create new kinds of infrastructure?
2: Yeah. and, And I, thank you, Chris. I think that that ties back to actually something that yesha was uh, talking about in terms of uh, the domestic aspect of it one of the questions that sometimes folks ask in the space in, in the u.s context with fed now is if you are maybe a government actor say why do we need the stable coins and cbdc's we're going to have fed now fed now is going to be fantastic why do we need that if you're a bank, and, and I am a recovering banker, if you're a bank and say, "Why do you need the stable coins? We, you can just tokenize deposits." And why? And, and there is this kind of Panglossian view that, "Oh, we already live in the best of possible worlds. Why? Why do we need uh, to? Why do we need the new stuff?" Uh, two types of answers to that. First of all, even if that were true, even if it was a, a question of problem solved, I do believe that the role of regulation and the law is not to give to ask for a reason to why is to provide a reason for why not. So even if there was a reason of, of problem, uh, it, it, there was not a need and the market wanted to go there. I think that's that's not a reason to to prevent that. The other is I don't think it is it is problem solved at all. If you look at uh, FedNow now for, for our audience, FedNow is a system is real-time gross settlement system uh, that Jesha was referring about but kind of the retail version for that. Is there the version that is going to be 24-7 a at smaller payments, meaning that you can do P2P payments as opposed to the multi-million dollars that go through FedWire and settle instantly. First, there has been a version of FedNow already in the US for a while, which is RTP, the competing structure that was provided by by the clearinghouse. house. arguably is only available to banks who are part of the clearinghouse, house but is is been uh, there and and I think that we all agree that that there can be a still improvement to the payment structure in uh, in the US what can you do with a cbdc and what can you do with a stable coin that you cannot do through fed now or uh, three things in my mind first one FedNow now is a is a domestic structure so it's something that will be helpful for banks that happen domestically in the US but will not help me if i am a small business in Auckland, that has a supplier in Indonesia, and I need to send money overnight. If I want to do that, I cannot use FedNow. I will go to my bank. I will uh, put a wire. The wire is going to charge. It's going to cost me fifty dollars. The money is going to disappear in ether for three days. It's going to appear in, in Jakarta three days from now in local currency for my supplier. So the the advantages of FedNow. FedNow is fantastic, and it should happen. It should have happened already, arguably. Uh, but it's not going to be something that is going to drive incremental functionality uh, beyond what, what we have uh, seen available already. So domestic versus cross-border is one aspect. Second aspect, very, very important in terms of financial inclusion. To benefit from FedNow, you still need to have a bank account. And as Jesha was was saying, FedNow will facilitate account-to-account payments. But as Jesha was, was saying, there is a large percentage of the population in the world. If you think outside of the U.S., according to Boston Consulting Group, around 25% of the people in the world are unbanked. Around 50% of people in the world are underbanked, meaning people who don't have access to a credit card, is the criteria they're, they use. So if you're a central bank, you are concerned about financial stability, and that's one important thing that you manage for, but you are also concerned about inclusion. And in a world in which uh, the use of cash, physical cash disappears, which is a fact in many markets, go to Sweden, go to any of the Nordics these days, is basically a cashless society. It's all electronic money. So if all electronic money is commercial bank money and you don't have a bank account, then basically you are disenfranchised. You cannot access the economy because you don't have that instrument that a bank has to give to you. So it is important that there are digital instruments that do not require a bank account for people to interact with the economy. And then in the specific case of... The stable coins, there are two elements that don't get discussed in my mind enough, which are programmability and cost. So you can program aspects of... If you have a, an stable coin that is essentially programmable e-money, programmable electronic money, many of the things that I refer at the beginning of the conversation in terms of the liability and the transaction, you can deal with. So I can, if I am sending you money in exchange of a payment of a good that you send me by courier, I can put that money in an electronic, in the equivalent of an electronic scroll that will only get liberated once the courier has deposited the, the, the good at my, uh, at my address. And then you can do things that will reduce that cost of payments through the programmability that you cannot do with existing uh, payment rails. The other is the cost. cost of payments in general in the world is around 200 to 300 basis points on the retail side. So 2% to 3% depending on what you are using. A, one of the actors that is active in stablecoins today is Circle. They published some information on the ecosystem of USDC, where they were publishing that the cost of a transaction with a stablecoin in different networks, in several cases, in several protocols, was less than one cent per transaction. When you're moving to a less than one cent, less than one tenth of a cent, you start to be able to do payment transactions that you cannot do today. You can do streaming payments, meaning, hey, I can open a channel between Jose and Yesha and pay X dollars a month and just move money back and forth as much as you want. Or I can be in a payment experience and I can buy digital goods that are worth a fraction of a penny. We are very inefficient to do with existing payment rails. So in the sense of both what you can do in terms of the cost, the domestic versus cross-border aspect, the interoperability, the programmability, and the need for a bank account. I think that those are things that, where even when you have Fed now, it still makes sense to continue to have that innovation, it still makes sense to consider CBDCs, and it still makes sense to consider private stablecoins.
0: We usually spend uh, a ton of time on this podcast going through different regulatory regimes, and, and, and certainly uh, we will address that once again. Um, we've had episodes on stablecoins, talking about stablecoin uh, regulation before. As well as regulation of banks and and pretty much everything uh, in fintech, so so I, I really want to, given both of your expertise, to actually you know keep it on the line of like what a payment is, and then and I think that the best way to sort of end out this conversation is on a very practical note. Um, you know, uh, Jose, and, and I think this kind of gets to your last comments. I mean, you, you, the, the report really assesses a number of areas where the U.S. payment system can have upgrades, right? I mean, we have the financial inclusion um, point that you guys have both made, the efficiency question, um, and the, the international and US dollar payments, uh, uh, a question of sort of interoperability and the movement of money. Right now, I'm sorry, I, I still have this vision of bags of money floating through the air after your comment about the planes. Uh, but, but you know, if, if, if there is no ability to sort of address or think through systematically how to upgrade payments. How does that or would that sort of impact the 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 everyday choices of Americans when they are deciding to make and receive payments? I mean, like like, like practically speaking, what does the absence of settlement innovation mean for most people here in the US? So
2: let, let me answer that in in Two ways, probably. Uh, as we discuss, I, I live in California. I live in in Silicon Valley, arguably the region that lives in the future and, and the bleeding edge of uh, many many things. Uh, three hours from when I live, Sierra County, California, uh, on the way to Tahoe, there is not a sole uh, branch of a bank in in all the county. So if I live in Sierra County and I receive a payment, I want to deposit that into a bank account and I need to go deposit the check or I receive cash and I want to put it in a bank account, I need to go to a different county. So in in, in that sense, there are this concept that, that has happened, that has emerged about banking deserts, which are areas that are being less. And that happens in rural areas, it happens in some inner city areas. So the requirement that you need to be able to have access to a physical bank account, or the requirement that you need to be able to have a smartphone or a different type of device to be able to engage with the economy is fundamentally flawed. And I think there's something that is an aspect on that digital divide that is emerging that we need to be able to address. We need to be able to do better than, than that. And there are very good reasons to have efficiency on banking branches and, and the like. We just need, we need to make sure that there are instruments that people can, can interact with. Uh, the second part will go to your point of Uh, use cases and the everyday uh, use of um, in the lives of of americans i think that we are still a little uh, bit uh, away from mainstream payments on a stable coin for traditional commerce cases i think that we're seeing massive innovation in payments we saw that with a, the move toward digital and e-commerce that was absolutely accelerated during the pandemic. And I don't think that we are going back from that. There is an, uh, the, 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 the People got very used to digital transactions and digital payments will continue to be the way forward. We see a very large adoption of mobile for payments. Traditionally, we saw that for electronic commerce. These days, we are seeing it more and more even even if in, in a store and you see more people tapping their phones and, and, and interacting at the store with a, with a mobile payment device. In the case of stablecoins and in the case of CBDCs, in the cases where CBDCs are are already functioning, which I would say probably at scale, the, the only case that there is right now is is China. But if we focus on stablecoins, I do think that where we will see adoption to begin with is in, in four places. One where we are already seeing it, and, and we talk about this in the report, which is the whole crypto ecosystem. There is an ecosystem that has to do with trading and institutional investors, and money getting in and out of of crypto where it makes a ton of sense to use something that is low cost, digitally native, uh, and 24 and seven. So that's something that is already, a, it's not mainstream, but it's already well established for the vertical. I think that the next one is gonna be in a specific set of verticals that are already ripe for that. And I'm thinking of things like uh, gaming. I think that the gaming vertical is, a, is games are again same as payment is more than transaction. Gaming is way more than games in the sense that the computing requirements and the economies that that are generated around games are very very conducive to something where you can do fast, instant in-game uh, microtransactions, and, and that require interoperability. I don't know, uh, Chris, if if uh, your kids are into Roblox or Minecraft mine are and where and there are whole economies around that and the, and the fact that you can get rewarded in robux and then but they are locking that ecosystem and there is a way in which you can convert that on something that allows you to take that value and take it to the minecraft universe that there, there is something that is very very native to digital money that moves at the speed of technology and in a digital fashion the third one in my mind is B 2 b2b payments i think that is Very, very clear that there is a clear pain point, especially for small and mid-sized enterprises that have international activity. And if you can enable something that is cheaper than a wire uh, 24-7, that doesn't work nine to five on banking hours and that settles instantly, rational actors in the business space that don't have an issue with anonymity, don't have an issue with uh, know your business and, and complying with that, there is a very strong economic incentive to do that. And we already see billions of dollars in stablecoin-denominated volume that is going through for B2B transactions. Still early days, but I think that that's gonna be a big adoption uh, vector. And the last one is cross-border retail uh, e-commerce. That's what we are seeing these days. Imagine the cases, I am in Peru, I want to buy online from an American merchant, but I lack an international credit card uh, uh, in Peru. And the the decline rates could be up to 70, 80% of the time if I don't have one of those cards. So there are more and more appetite from consumers in those regions who want to to buy from merchants that are in a different country to have an instrument that they can use that does not require to go through traditional rails. So I don't think that you should expect that we'll see a lot of payment buttons for stable coins in your mainstream merchants tomorrow. I think that this is going to start again in the crypto ecosystem. is very widely used already. Then think about gaming, think about international retail, think about uh, B2B payments. I think that's that's where we'll, do, we'll be seeing it first.
1: If I can just add really quickly on this, you do a ton of work in inclusion and the picture for folks who are underrepresented within the financial system and within the payment system is extremely bleak in terms of the choices that they have available to them. So just to give you some sense statistically of what has happened here. As Jose mentioned, we have really moved very fast towards cashlessness um, as a in as a as, as a country. Um, around four in ten Americans today report making no payments in cash throughout the week. For folks earning more than a hundred thousand, that number is like six out of ten. Um, you know, six out of ten Americans will make all who are who earn more than a hundred thousand dollars will make all of their payments. Um, cash cashlessly. But when you look at what's happening within marginalized communities, the picture is completely different. So there's huge amounts of cash use um, in underrepresented communities. So black Americans, 25% of black Americans report making all of their payments in cash. Now, when you look at the the reason for this is because there's a huge underbanking problem. There's a huge non-banking problem because it's expensive. You need minimum balances. There's a lack of trust in the system. And as Jose mentioned, there's a lack of bank branching there so these statistics point to a situation where it's unsafe you have to go to the ATM you have to wait in long queues to get the money out um, you you have to get find ways people to pay you in cash um, it's it's a really sad reality for many who are living within it that they're not able to take advantage of all the different communities that we take for you know that folks who are in in within the bank system within the digital system take for granted. And so in this context, as, as Jose was mentioning, things like CBDC payment schemes could be super useful. The, bah- the Bahamians, for example, are trying the sand dollar in which you don't need any documentation, small minimum balances to join. At least that gives you some digital payment optionality where you're being paid in central bank money. It's super safe. So the banks aren't taking risks on the customers themselves. Um, the country is. And so you're able to enjoy these large, potentially inclusive payment schemes where you're you know, handling central bank money, hopefully that, you know, encourages, um, uh, you know, bank-based distribution of central bank money, encourages folks to come in who potentially don't have documentation, who would like to be in this um, formal financial perimeter. And it just creates optionality in terms of how they engage with the financial system. So I think... You know, as as Jose was mentioning, we need solutions to the underbanking and exclusion problem in the US. Those solutions have been very slow in coming, and that's extracting a real cost on a human level from populations around this country that should really be intolerable from a policy perspective.
0: Well, thank you very much to both of you. As promised to our listeners, we went from zero to 60 from the current to uh, the, the the future. And it was really a tour de force. And really, I don't know of any other two people who could have accomplished that in such a short time. Thank you so much, Jose. Thank you so much, Yesha, for joining us on the FinTech Week. And we can't wait to get you back.
1: It's such a pleasure to be Thank you.
0: Thank you, Chris. Payments are the lifeblood of the economy, and when they don't operate well, can serve as big clogged arteries as well. Now, sometimes the issues that tend to get stuck come from unanticipated developments in the ecosystem, and sometimes they come from outside of the financial system, and sometimes they come from a failure to evolve, either on the part of regulators or on the part of industry. But to figure out just what technology means for payments, you have to really understand what payments are are and just how they operate. And for that, I have to give a hat tip to Yesha, Jose, and Amy for doing just that. Their paper, Payments and the Evolution of Stablecoins and CBDCs in the Global Economy is a tour de force. And even this old Finreg professor learned a lot reading through it. Congratulations. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.